So uh, over the last several weeks, we've been discussing how to be indispensable people, people that the world can't live without. And I'm about to spend about 40 minutes digging in to this subject today in a way that I hope will be meaningful to you. Uh, I know a lot of people like to follow along uh, with our life notes. If you're not aware of those, uh, there are life notes in a seat back pocket somewhere close to you, and you can follow along if you want to. So an indispensable person is someone who knows that they were created to play an indispensable role in God's life and his world. An indispensable person knows that God and his world could get along without us playing our God-written role, but shouldn't have to. It's not enough to be created indispensable, however. We must cultivate the qualities of the heart that allow us to actually live out our indispensability. All of us have been designed for indispensability to play a unique role in this world, but all of us are not necessarily living our indispensability out, and that's what this series is about. So two weeks ago, we began working through what we call around here the five eyes of indispensable people. The first I is integral or integral. It can be pronounced both ways, and I probably go back and forth. Integral people are fundamentally honest. They do what they say they will do. They are team players. They see themselves as a necessary part of something bigger than they are. Uh, integral people practice reciprocal candor. They speak truth and receive truth from others and therefore protect the integrity of the team or whatever organization or enterprise they're a part of. And integral people have structural integrity, which means that each part of their lives are working in concert with every other part of their lives to create a healthy and whole person. It's a quick summation of a couple of weeks ago. Last week, Dan Dean did a great job uh, in his own unique voice uh, introducing the second I of the five eyes of indispensable people. He talked about how indispensable people are inspired and inspiring. Uh, I encourage you, if you didn't hear Dan last week, to go back. Of course, all of our uh, weekend talks are archived online, and you can watch that and the first one. Today, I want to talk about how an indispensable person is initiating. That's the third eye of the five eyes of indispensable people. It's initiating. So the biblical model that we're using of actualized indispensability is David, second king of Israel. Most of you would be familiar with who he is. Um, he's certainly a, a well-known historical figure. Uh, a whole lot about David is summed up in a passage in the New Testament where we're told that God raised up David to be their king, the king of, of the children of Israel. Of him, he testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart who will do all my will. Again, a very well-known passage. Uh, there's this incredible uniqueness about God saying, I found in this particular person 
certain qualities that remind me of myself. He is a man after my heart, and I know that because of what I see in him, that he will do my will. One translation has God saying, he will carry out my program fully. Now, there's a, there's a passage in this context. So, so, so what I've tried to do is identify in David, as have many, what are these, what are these heart qualities that God was so impressed with? And I, uh, we've based the five eyes of indispensable people on these. It's not an exhaustive list. It's, 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 these are some of the things that seem to be important. And one of those is that it's clear that David fulfilled this idea of what it means to be initiating. Probably the most uh, famous story of David's life is the story of David and Goliath. And I won't recount the whole story. Uh, I just want to show you quickly how David initiated taking on the challenge that Goliath represented. So um, David was a young man, a young shepherd. He had six older brothers. They were a part of the Israelite army. And the Israelite army was engaged in a battle, a standoff actually of sorts with their arch enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines were to Israel what the Red Sox are to the Yankees. Why am I thinking about the Red Sox and Yankees today? We need to have a prayer. Uh, but anyway, these were their arch enemies and the Philistines were arranged in battle array on one hill. There was a valley. The Israelites were arranged on the hill opposite. And all that was going on was that every day, a giant of a man named Goliath, a guy nine and a half feet tall, tremendously skilled in hand-to-hand -hand combat, walked out into the valley, shouted at the Israelite army that uh, they needed to send someone to face him, and whoever won the battle between the two of them would uh, have one victory for their entire army. Uh, you know the story. <clears throat> Nobody from the Israelite army was interested in that challenge. Until David, this, we think, young teenager, was sent by his dad to check on his older brothers and bring them some food, and he heard the taunt of Goliath, and David started asking, you know, what, what's the deal? And it was explained to him, and someone said, in fact, this is repeated twice, they said uh, King Saul, the first king of Israel, uh, David's predecessor, King Saul has said that whoever will fight Goliath, uh, if, they, if they survive the battle, uh, Saul is going to give his beautiful daughter uh, Michael in marriage to that man, and their family will be tax-exempt for the rest of their lives. Now, you would have thought that if those Israelites lived in West Orange, that that would have been enough to risk your life for. <laughs> However, I digress again. Nobody would take the challenge until David says, I want to fight this giant. And he starts to say this. His older brother says, you're a conceited and ambitious young man. Who do you think you are? But word gets to King Saul. There's somebody who actually wants to go after Goliath. And he calls him in, you know, his 
pavilion and it says, what's the deal? And David said, I want to fight Goliath. And Saul said, you're crazy. You're just a teenage boy. But here's what David says in response. David said to Saul, 1 Samuel 17, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. Now that doesn't sound like a good qualification. Uh, Being a shepherd doesn't sound like a good reason that you should fight Goliath. But Your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. Now, the part of this that thrills me in the context of today's talk is how David tried to convince Saul he could handle the giant. He said when he was watching his family's sheep and a lion or a bear, significant challenges, came to carry off a sheep from the flock, David didn't just say, well, I guess I lost one. David, note the action language, went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep. And when the lion or bear turned on him, he said, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Again, note the action language here. I went after it, struck it, seized it, killed it. This is not a passive guy. I'm going to say it again because I like it so much. I went after it, struck it, seized it, killed it, and I rescued the sheep. And you might note that when David is given his shot at Goliath, that when this giant came toward him in battle, the the, the text says, and I don't have it on the screen, but the text says that David ran quickly to meet him. I love this. It says so much about the kind of person who lives out their indispensability. This is the kind of, not the only, but a kind of heart quality that impressed God that caused him to choose him so that David could actually be the person God made him to be, to carry out God's will fully. He was someone who saw a challenge and went after it. He saw an opportunity and ran toward it. He accepted responsibility for himself and others, and he took action, even at great risk to himself. And of course, against Goliath, and then many other times in his legendary career, he won great victories. Here's the deal. Initiating people go after it. They ask for responsibility. They hunger for challenge. They take great risk for great rewards. They seize opportunity. They fight for God and good. They want something and they run towards it. They strike and rescue and seize it. They kill it. Now that offers a great backdrop for what I think about when I think about initiating people. So let me offer three kind of long thoughts about initiating people with that in mind. First of all, initiating people pray, dream, think, plan, create, risk, and act. And if I could find another word like that, I would have probably stuck it in there. Pray, dream, think, plan, create, risk, and act in an environment that rewards appropriate failure as well as success. 
They are motivated to achieve breathtaking success, not to avoid failure. So first of all, because I think most of us have the ability to, at least to some extent, influence the environment in which we work and certainly live, let's talk about the kind of environment that encourages people to be go-after-it kind of people. As I've mentioned uh, in past weeks, these five eyes of indispensable people were initially developed by me and our staff team here at TLCC some, I don't know, six or seven years ago where we went through about a six-month-long research and creative and discussion process where we wanted to end up delineating the kind of qualities we hoped to see in ourselves and our teammates. And one thing that I came to feel strongly about in that process and since is that it's essential to create a faith environment for people to live out their indispensability. I want as opposed to a fear environment. I want people to feel empowered to take God-inspired risk to advance his cause, to believe for success, to act in faith. I don't want people to act because of fear or to be inactive because of fear. I have learned, as have many of you, that highly successful organizations and this includes families, which I'll come to in a moment, attempt to create a culture that honors those who risk the most. We need to develop an environment where we're motivated not by the fear of failure, but by the fear of not having risk. We're gonna be afraid of anything, that's what we should be afraid of. John Wooden, perhaps the greatest college basketball coach in history, said that when you punish your people for making a mistake or falling short of a goal, you create an environment of extreme caution, even fearfulness. In sports, it's called playing not to lose, a formula that often brings on defeat. So successful organizations are always on the offensive, playing to win. They even to the point where uh, they celebrate failure, knowing that if a few things aren't failing, that they probably haven't risked enough. There's this great story that would be known to some of you of Tom Watson Sr., the founder of IBM. There was a junior level executive who was empowered to make some decisions on his own and he took a risk that lost the company $10 million. And he had done everything right, it's just that when it's all said and done, the, the risk that he took uh, to try to get a big win didn't work out and he was called into Tom Watson's office and when, when he walked in, he blurted out, uh, I know that you wanna ask for my resignation and Watson interrupted him, he said, are you kidding? We just spent $10 million educating you. And that is the kind of story that, that influenced the environment of that organization. Now, I doubt that if he would have come in and, and, and lost $10 million several more times, that would have happened. But nonetheless, that's the kind of story that made its way through the organization that let people know, we're here to try to win. We're not here to try to avoid failure. Um, one, when, when, when we review, that, now, 
everything about this kind of, of talk, this kind of idea, the five eyes of indispensable people, uh, which are our people values at TLCC for our staff team, something that we talk about when we're on our game to our volunteers, whether it's that or organizational values, the TLCC way, it's always aspirational. None of these, of course, are perfectly lived out, but it's important that you state what you want and that you keep returning to it and you keep saying, this is what we're aiming for. Yeah, there are going to be gaps, but we're constantly trying to close the gaps. Some of this stuff that I teach about today, there are things I didn't understand 20 years ago, 15 years ago, sometimes even 10 years ago. I've been working on these things. These things have been working on me, and that's still an ongoing process. So again, aspirationally, when we review performance for our team at TLCC, we uh, for our staff team, if you're new to us, we have I think about 30 people on our, on, our, uh, on our staff team here, we take into account three things. We take into account their job description. Are you actually doing what you were hired to do? Secondly, whether or not they're living up to the five eyes of indispensable people. We go through every one of these eyes and talk through them as it relates to that person. And thirdly, their, their goals. And something that I came to realize is that it's very easy to create an environment where people set goals and aim low. It's just human nature because you want to show up at review time and you want to have met your goals. And we started talking several years ago, this isn't unique to us, several years ago about making sure that at least one of your goals is a big swing. It's, it's something where you're going to swing hard and you, you, you have an opportunity to knock the ball out of the park or perhaps you're going to swing hard and miss. We're going to, we're going to not just reward you for meeting, for, for, for picking the low-hanging fruit to mix metaphors, but we also want to reward you because you're trying to accomplish something big. We're going to reward success and we're also going to celebrate the fact that sometimes we try to do something that's so big that perhaps we didn't get it done done and we're going to create an environment where you can risk for a great cause. I'm reminded even as I'm studying this this week that this is something we need to return back to. Um, uh, now we don't want someone showing up and saying here are my three to five goals and I missed them all. But somewhere in there, there needs to be something that what you knew at the beginning of the year when you sat down with your supervisor, this is really going to be, there's going to be a lot of risk involved here and we're going to do everything we can to help you to be successful at this. It's creating a faith environment, people. I encourage you in whatever environment you may influence to create a faith environment where someone knows they can go after it and it's okay that uh, maybe we don't always win in every case. Now, this has an obvious application to business. Has a, this has an obvious application to the classroom. If you're one of the many teachers or professors who attend TLCC. But I think about it most when I think about family. Uh, Chip and Dan Heath in their beautiful and well-researched book, The Power of Moments, talk about a woman who had accomplished extraordinary things in her business career, and they discovered after studying her at length that at the root of her success was this, and I quote from Heath and Heath, when Blakely and her brother were growing up, her father would ask them a question every week at the dinner table. What did you guys fail at this week? If we had nothing to tell him, he'd be disappointed. Now that's an interesting dinner conversation. What did you guys fail at this week? 
What did you try that you didn't think had a sure result? And at the root of her success was that kind of thing. I was talking to one of my adult children just this past week. I won't disclose which one, three great kids, and um, uh, this, this child, even though they're adults, they're still my children, um, this child was uh, talking to me about a, 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 a big risk that they're thinking about taking in their career. And um, I was listening. It was late at night. We were sitting on, we were sitting and, and, and talking. And I was offering some fatherly cautionary advice, reminding this child that Jesus said, if you're going to build a counter tower, you have to count the cost. You have to. What is this going to cost? You have to. You don't just go take crazy risk. You, you're thinking through the whole thing. You know there's a level of success. And this child looked at me and said, Dad, you know the reason. Why I'm thinking like this is because of what you taught our family. And I thought again, I just should keep my mouth shut. But the, the reality is there, there's some pain involved in that But for me, but there's also excitement involved in that for me because that's exactly right. Those are the kinds of conversations we had at the dinner table. It's, you know, what's, what do you think God's calling you to do? What's your area of destiny? I want you to believe. Sometimes that's going to make your life harder rather than easier. You're going to have more rather than less challenges. More than likely, you're going to have some failures along the way. But that's okay because we want to be the kind to play our our indispensable role in this world, we have to be the kind of people who go after it, who seize it, who, who kill it, if you please. We have to be those kinds of people. One of the, one of the most prolific and popular portrait painters in the history of the United States is a guy with whom some of you would be familiar, a guy named G, uh, pardon me, George P.A. Healy. I saw some of his work this week at the Met, in fact. When Healy was a little-known artist in Boston during the 1800s, his work really uh, was mostly between probably 1815, 1900, somewhere in there, um, he, was a, he was a struggling young artist. He wanted to paint portraits. He ended up, by the way, painting the portraits of everybody from Abraham Lincoln to the Pope to just all the famous people who lived in that era of time. But when he was a, when he was a, a, a starving artist, he knew that he needed, if you please, to take a big swing. And he uh, decided that he wanted to paint a, a famous person. And there was a, a woman in uh, Boston where he lived, Sally Foster Otis, the wife of a senator, who was called the Queen of Boston. And uh, he one day walked up the stairs uh, to the door of her Beacon Hill home, knocked on the door, and when she came to the door, here's a quote, I told her that I was an artist and that my ambition was to paint a beautiful woman and that I begged her to sit for me. 
And she agreed, and he painted her, and the painting became well-known, and all of a sudden a bunch of other people started asking him to paint them, and he goes from being a starving artist to a really, really successful artist. I, I just think that we need to create environments in our home and in every other environment we influence that people feel empowered to walk up and knock on doors and to ask for what they want. And to know there's a possibility that the answer will be no. But people just live like that with a sense of expectation. What do I want? What opportunities do I see? What am I feeling called to? What's the success I'm going after? I'm going to, in fact, go after it. I'm going to initiate it. Now, you might say... You might say it'd be cool to work in an environment like that or, or to, 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 for a leader like that or, or to, for my parents to have been that way. I mean, I'm going to guess there are a lot of us in this room that, 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 that our parents didn't create a faith environment for us, and we have to work to overcome some of that. Thankfully, in fact, mine did. Um, but... Uh, It'd be, so you might be saying, I'd love for that to happen, but, but listen, in the big picture of life, and this is kind of an existential point, but it's really important, I think. In the big picture of life, if you are a Christ follower, your life is lived in a faith environment. The whole of your life. Remember, Jesus challenged us always to act in faith, to do greater things than he did, to speak to mountains, to jump out of the boat, to ask for anything, to invest our lives, even at great risk, to change the world. And he is the ultimate judge and rewarder in our life. It's not, it's not our parents, it's not our boss, uh, it's, it, they're, they're not our peers. Ultimately, the environment of our life should be influenced by Jesus who let us know that the key to pretty much everything is faith. It's believing in him and it's believing that he shows up in our life when we act in ways that show faith. So really all of us, none of us have an excuse to not see ourselves as ultimately being in an environment where we can pray, dream, think, plan, create, risk, and act in a way that rewards appropriate risk. So go after it. There's this great passage in the Thessalonians where Paul's praying for people, and um, I could preach about this every Sunday and be a happy guy. Paul says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may make you worthy of his calling and that by his power he may bring to fruition your every desire for goodness and, note these words, your every deed prompted by faith. God engages in our life in very unique, only God stuff kinds of ways when we act in faith. So where this week in your life did you take some step of faith 
See, sometimes we, we, we go to God and we're praying about just our need or what we're afraid of or what we're concerned about, which is good. This is part of our relationship with God. But there's this whole other part where God, for some reason, there's no time to get into all the theology of this, but God, for some reason, gets particularly, this is a human term that doesn't describe God as well as it should, but for the lack of a better one right now, there's something about faith that motivates God to get involved in our lives in ways that he doesn't get involved otherwise. He loves it when people walk up to the door and knock and ask and go after things in their lives. What? Is there anything this week that you gave God an opportunity to do something great around because you did something totally inspired by faith? I mean, give God a chance. Here's a second thing I would say about initiating people. Initiating people take ideas from thought to reality, knowing that being creative and shaping the future is innate to being created in the image of God. So the thing I wanna focus on are, is taking ideation, which is a discipline in and of itself, to action and knowing that we can create new realities because we went after it. So let me offer an example of where David should have taken action but didn't. Please remember that indispensable people aren't perfect, of course. David's heart was to go after it, but he didn't always do this. He made some huge mistakes in his life. Some were sins, some were missed opportunities, some were just being human, somehow though, David always repented and learned and grew and kept pursuing God and his purposes. This is so important. Some seasons in David's life are at best messy. He suffered a lot, sometimes because of his own actions and sometimes because of the actions of others. This is life. Somehow, though some chapters of David's life are ugly, the whole entire story ends up being blessed by God. This should give us all hope. Now, one of the huge messy stories in the life of David is the story of the rebellion of his son, Absalom. I write about this at great length in my book, The Hospitable Leader, in the section where I am trying to, to talk about how the, the leader is always responsible for the environment of the organization. A lot of times when people think about Absalom, again, even if you're not very familiar with the Bible, most of us are familiar with the name of Absalom. Absalom led a rebellion against his father. But though Absalom's name lives in infamy, I think that in fact, we're a little unfair to him because I think David bears a lot of responsibility for where Absalom ended up. Uh, without going into detail, suffice it to say that there was some severe family dysfunction in David's home. Absalom, because his father neglected to do what he needed to do about a terrible situation, Absalom took the matter in his own hand, and he was a young man, and he acted in ways that he shouldn't have, and he made things worse, um, but at least he was trying. But as a result of that, Absalom got banished from the kingdom and banished from the family for years. David would have nothing to do with him. Absalom couldn't even cross the borderline into Israel. 
And clearly, Absalom felt great pain at this. He was supposed to succeed David on the throne. He was the guy. Uh, And a lot of time passed and a lot of amazing story until finally David has an encounter with a woman that God uses to speak to him. This woman's called in scripture, the wise woman of Tekoa. And here's what she says to him in brief, in part. When the king says, 2 Samuel 14, when the king says this, does he not convict himself for the king has not brought back his banished son. But that is not what God desires. Rather, he devises ways so that a banished person does not remain banished from him. This shows us something amazing about God's heart. Now, of course, in the big picture, the wise woman of Tekoa is, respond, is talking about how God acted towards all of humanity. The fall caused us to be banished from God, his presence, and his purposes. But that wasn't good enough for God. Because even before humanity fall, got, fell, God had an idea in his mind about how he was going to bring humanity back. And he, though it took time and he had to work it out through history and all of this culminated in the person of Jesus Christ, the bottom line is, the wise woman of Tekoa said, God devises ways so that a banished person will not always be banished from him. And this woman looks at David then and essentially says, David, devise a way to bring your banished son back. You know you're supposed to do it. Now, figure it out. Do it. And finally, at some point, David in fact does. Brings him back, kind of, but still years go on before David really affects a reconciliation. And by now, the heart of Absalom has grown cold, and he leads the rebellion that he's so famous for. I look at David and say, you know, from a leadership perspective, from the perspective of a father, you should have figured this out a long time earlier, and if you would have, you would have avoided tremendous pain in your life. Devise a way. My question, and, 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 and hear this then, the wise one of Tekoa says, when God has an idea in his mind, he figures out a way to get it done. It doesn't just stay in his mind, he devises a way. David, you know what you should do, Devise a way, figure it out, to which I say to all of us today, what do we have in our mind that needs to get put out into the world of the real and the lived? What do we think about, have in our heart that could change a life or maybe the world? One of the great tragedies in life is to know the good we ought to do and not to do it. Somehow we have to devise a way to get it out of our mind and into this world. You may have an idea that could make a tremendous difference in the lives of any number of people. Get it out of your mind. Bring it into reality. You may know something that you need to do to heal a relationship. You may have a work of art in you that will inspire countless people. You may have a calling to serve the children or the elderly or whoever. You may have an idea for a business that could serve others in powerful ways. If you have something in you that you know you should be doing and you aren't doing it, devise a way. You are the one person 
in the world who can do what you were made to do. You have indispensability in you. Figure out how to do that thing that God's put in your mind and heart. Initiating people take ideas from thought to reality, knowing that shaping the future and being creative and shaping the future is innate to what it means to be created in the image of God. So let me spend a couple minutes on this. We have to devise a way to both imagine or ideate and act to create new reality. Is everybody doing okay? I look around the room and it's amazing. Most people seem to be awake. This is always such good news for me. So first of all, we have to imagine. I think that most of us don't understand the responsibility we have to actually have ideas, to imagine new realities. Uh, Einstein famously said that most of his breakthroughs came not through scientific study, but through the use of his imagination. Einstein's ideas changed the world in at least very significant ways, and, and he was very clear in saying, imagination is more important than knowledge. This is what he actually said. Imagination is more important than knowledge, because knowledge is about the, it's things that already exist. But in order to create, you have to imagine things that do not exist. And he very famously, you know, would sit in a, the train station and imagine certain things happening that I don't even understand as it concerns some of his theories. But he would just Im imagine things, state those things, and actually there were other scientists who proved out his theories over time. But, but imagination was able to see something that doesn't exist. What an amazing thing for us to be able to, first of all, see a new possibility. But when we see a new possibility, which, which I, which I, I want to say is to some extent a discipline, some of us just live in the world of that which already exists. And we get satisfied with the way things are, or we get used to. Now, sadly enough, some of us complain all the time about it. Well, devise a way to make it better. And that starts as a th thought experiment. What could be? But then when we get that in our mind, we have to add to it then action. What needs to happen to actually bring this what could be into the world of the real? Uh, it doesn't do any good to have a great idea if you can't take the idea from thought to reality. And this is then when, when, when actually folks actually have ideas, let's be frank. Most of them don't actually get turned into anything more than an idea. There's a simple little chart uh, with which I can have the excuse to use my laser pointer, which will make my day. The math is kind of weird, but it's very simple. But it's five great ideas times zero actions equals zero. A hundred great ideas times zero actions equals zero. Now, I know the math is weird here, but... I'm not very good at math, but I think I have this right. Three great ideas times just two actions equals two things brought into reality. I know three times two should be six, but you get the point. 
either ask me later or explain it to me later. But, but the point is, better to have three ideas and take two actions than to have a hundred ideas and not to take any. There are things, there are things in this world you were made to do. And to be the indispensable person God called you to be, you've got to imagine new reality and act to bring it into existence. Andy Stanley said, leaders are not always the first to see an opportunity, they are simply the first to seize opportunity. And then finally, initiating people do not wait for external motivation, they motivate themselves from ideation to execution. You. We can't wait for somebody else to motivate us to be the person. I mean, I'm trying to motivate you. But ultimately, when you're driving in your car on Tuesday, you're not going to have me up here shouting, right? We have to motivate ourselves in a way that leans into what God's trying to do in our life, which I'll talk about in just a moment. But one way to, I like to say this is, it, it, is that we must fight the resistance and do the work. I've talked about this in the past. I feel like mentioning it again kind of as I close today. Stephen Pressfield wrote this wonderful book called The War of Art. He wrote another little book called Do the Work. I highly recommend them to you. Um, And here's part of what he said. Most of us have two lives, the life we live and the unlived life within us. Between the two stands resistance. Have you experienced a vision of the person you might become, the work you could accomplish, the realized being you were meant to be? Are you a writer who doesn't write, a painter who doesn't paint, an entrepreneur who never starts a venture? Then you know what resistance is. To yield to resistance deforms our spirit. If you believe in God, and I do, you must declare resistance evil for it prevents us from achieving the life God intended. Rule of thumb, the most important The more important a call or action is, the more resistance we will feel toward pursuing it. The most important thing about art is to work. Nothing else matters except sitting down every day and trying. When we sit down day after day and keep grinding, something mysterious starts to happen. A process is set into motion by which inevitably and infallibly heaven comes to our aid. Unseen forces enlist in our cause. Just as resistance has its seat in hell, so creation has its home in heaven. There's a certain amount of resistance that's just part of what it means to be human. There's another part of resistance that are those times, according to Ephesians 6, we're not fighting flesh and blood, but but spiritual darkness. Regardless, in order for us to to live the lives we were meant to live, we're going to have to face the resistance. We're going to have to do the work. We're going to have to go after it, even when it's not easy. Now, the beauty, the beauty, the beauty of this, the beauty of this is that, you know, let's bring this now, as I always try to do, to the gospel. The good news about Jesus is that what makes what I'm saying today different from just a self-help talk. I think positive mental attitude and I think self-help talks are good. I'm all for it. But that's, I'm not a self-help motivational speaker. I'm a 
Christ follower whose life has been changed by Jesus. And I know that part of the good news of the gospel is that if God created us to be something, and if he created us to do something, and if we will let him, he will come and help us and bring supernatural strength and energy in a way that's beyond our own power. This is why everything that I'm saying today has to be overlaid with something this simple. Always, the most important thing is to cultivate our relationship with Jesus. Always, the most important thing is to lean into the Holy Spirit and allow the Holy Spirit to help us become more than what we should. Now, sometimes Christians say that and they use as an excuse to not go initiate. But there's this beautiful reality in our lives. It's joining the dance between God God does and we do. God speaks, we pray. God leads, we follow. God inspires, we believe. God acts, we respond. We act, God responds. There's this delicate thing where we know that we, we do what we know we're, we need to do at the same time acting in faith that God's gonna show up and do the things only God can do. So we're neither passive nor are we the active. Eugene Peterson said that we pray in the middle voice. That's that we're not doing all the acting, we're not, this is a big concept for the last 30 seconds of this talk, but it just occurs to me. We're, so when we pray in the middle voice, I would say that we live in the middle voice. The active voice is, I'm doing all the acting. The passive voice is, all the acting is being done by someone else. The middle voice understands there's a blend between the two. I'm acting, someone else is acting. And in our relationship with God, we live in the middle voice. We understand that God is at work, and if God's at work, we need to be at work. But it's not all up to us. Now, we need to do acts prompted by our faith, but know then that God's going to show up and do the things only God can do. Paul said in Philippians 2.13, it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is at work in you. Now, he's causing you to will and he's causing you to act. So act in accordance with what God has made you to be. Would you please stand with me? <clears throat> 